thedocs.net podcast with Britt Long and Manny Singh. We bring you high-yield content about what you're seeing every day in the ED. Today we're going to focus on something that we see on a regular basis in the ED, and that's end-stage renal disease, which is defined by a GFR of less than 15 milliliters per minute. It depends really on where you work, but you might see these patients on every shift if you work near a dialysis center. However, if you don't, you may not see these patients commonly, and you really need to have an approach when you're evaluating these patients. In this first part of the podcast, we're going to look at this approach, and in the second, we'll take a look at several complications. When it comes to patients with end-stage renal disease, most die from cardiovascular disease, but sepsis is the most common cause of hospitalization for these patients. When you're first evaluating a patient with end-stage renal disease, your first question is, are they stable? If they're stable, then you can go on and move forward with some other detailed questions. One of the most important things to determine is why they developed renal failure in the first place and whether they're on dialysis. If they're on dialysis, how is their graft or access site doing? Where is it? When was it placed? And is there any pain, swelling, or erythema at the site? Make sure to do a close examination of that access site. Look at it, touch it, feel it for a brewery, listen for a thrill, and palpate for distal pulses. The skin is usually pretty thick and hyperpigmented over the specific access site. The next thing to consider if they're on dialysis is what's their routine or schedule for dialysis? When was their last session and have they missed any? Also, were there any complications with this last session or any complications in the past with dialysis? How long was dialysis and did they complete the full course? Next, what's their dry weight? If the patient knows their normal dry weight, you can compare their current weight to evaluate their current volume status. If they're in the ED for similar symptoms that they've experienced in the past, ask them what happened with their last visit. If the patient presents with an issue that occurred during a dialysis session, find out whether that symptom onset was at the beginning, the middle, or the end of the dialysis session. If it was during the beginning, you need to think about a vagal event or some sort of contamination or decreased PO intake. If it occurred at the end of the session, think about other issues like volume changes or large solute shifts from the dialysis. Finally, ask them about any symptoms for uremia, prior complications, urine production, and for the presence of native kidneys. On your exam, look at their vital signs, perform a thorough cardiopulmonary evaluation, including heart failure signs, murmurs, lungs for wheezes or rails, distant heart sounds, and peripheral edema. The last assessment that's needed is a neurologic evaluation, including mental status, any evidence of focal neurologic deficits, peripheral reflexes, sensation, and asterixis. Now let's bring in our first patient from dialysis. Let's say this patient is altered and confused after missing a single session of dialysis. The initial blood glucose is 122, and you find asterixis on exam, but there's no other focal neurologic deficits. When it comes to the neurologic system, there are many different neurologic complications that can occur in these patients. One of the most common is uremic encephalopathy. Unfortunately, a specific level of BUN is not reliable for diagnosis, 
And honestly, uremic encephalopathy is a diagnosis of exclusion. You need to think about many other conditions before you latch onto this diagnosis. For that altered patient, these conditions include things like intracerebral hemorrhage or ischemic stroke. You need to obtain a rapid blood glucose level, renal function, electrolytes, CBC, an EKG, and definitely a head CT non-contrast up front. Uremic encephalopathy primarily affects those with a GFR less than 15 milliliters per minute. This primarily is due to over 70 different toxins and a neurotransmitter imbalance. It's much more common in those patients who miss dialysis. Older patients and those with comorbidities typically demonstrate more severe symptoms when this occurs. Asterixis is very common, but other early signs include mood swings, weakness, and irritability. Neurologic deficits can change during the course of the disease. Treatment includes dialysis, but the neurologic changes that occur due to uremic encephalopathy may persist for several days after dialysis. The next condition is dialysis disequilibrium syndrome. This primarily occurs due to serum osmolality changes in hemodialysis, which results in diffusion of water into the CNS. Risks include the first hemodialysis treatment, a BUN over 60, chronic kidney disease, and acidosis. Treatment primarily includes slowing or stopping dialysis, and symptoms usually resolve after several hours. Provide antiemetics for any patients with severe symptoms like nausea and vomiting, and if they're seizing, provide a hypertonic solution like mannitol or hypertonic saline. The final neurologic emergency is intracerebral hemorrhage and ischemic stroke. Both of these conditions occur much more frequently in patients with end-stage renal disease. And end-stage renal disease is a poor prognostic marker. Subdural hematoma occurs 10 to 20 times more frequently in these patients. Altered mental status is much more common in patients with ICH, and patients may even have focal deficits. Unfortunately, ischemic stroke is also more common in this population with worse outcomes. Obtain the head CT, get an ECG, and of course, the glucose. Thrombolytics can be provided for those with ischemic stroke if contraindications are not present. If ICH is present, reverse any anticoagulation and get your neurosurgeons on the phone. Let's switch gears to a different patient who presents with chest pain and shortness of breath. What conditions do we need to consider in this patient with end-stage renal disease? These patients are at significant risk for cardiopulmonary complications, with cardiovascular disease accounting for over 40% of mortality in end-stage renal disease. Electrolyte abnormalities, left ventricular hypertrophy, hypercholesterolemia, and atherosclerosis all predispose these patients to increased risk of ACS. And these patients are also at risk for severe arrhythmias and heart failure. The first complication we're going to look at is pericarditis and effusion. Pericarditis usually presents with fever, some sharp chest pain that can radiate to the trapezius, chest pain that may worsen in the supine position, and even a pericardial friction rub. However, this rub isn't always present. These patients may present with dyspnea, and a pericardial effusion can occur in up to 20% of patients. Fluid from a uremic pericardial effusion is typically sterile. BUN is often greater than 60, and the EKG may not reveal those normal stages of pericarditis that we typically see in other patients. Chest X-ray can show an enlarged cardiac size if the effusion is chronic and long-standing. Your most important test is an ultrasound to evaluate for evidence of tamponade. 
Poor prognostic findings include those with hemodynamic instability, a significantly elevated wet count, fever, a fusion over 2 centimeters, poor social situation, and poor compliance with dialysis. These patients should probably be admitted. Patients who are hypotensive require immediate assessment for tamponade with ultrasound with IV fluid bowls to enhance preload. Pericardiosynthesis with IV fluid is required in those with a periarrest state. For those patients with pericarditis who might be appropriate for discharge and they don't have an effusion, give the patient acetaminophen and also they'll need dialysis. Acute coronary syndrome is the big emergency in these patients. This accounts for the highest percentage of deaths in this patient population. The unfortunate thing about this condition though is that patients don't always present with chest pain. Nausea, shortness of breath, and weakness are much more common, and the EKG at baseline may demonstrate LVH or other abnormalities. Troponin can also be elevated at baseline, but a change from baseline or an elevation by at least 20% on repeat assessment is strongly suggestive of ACS. Give these patients aspirin and your other standard ACS medications. There's really no dose adjustment that's needed for aspirin, clopidogrel, unfractionated heparin, or thrombolytics, but Lovenox dosing does require adjustment. If STEMI is present, the patient will need PCI or thrombolytics. Pulmonary edema with fluid overload is the most frequent cause of dyspnea in these patients, and it's most commonly due to misdialysis. However, ACS and CHF can also result in fluid buildup and pulmonary edema. Obtain rapid IV access, get the patient on monitors, obtain an EKG, and perform an ultrasound of the heart and lungs. On ultrasound, look at cardiac function, presence of B-lines, and the IVC. You need to immediately resuscitate these patients with nitroglycerin and non-invasive positive pressure ventilation if they're in respiratory distress. Patients will also need emergent dialysis, and phlebotomy can function as a bridge to dialysis if other measures fail. The final major cardiopulmonary complication is air embolism. Venous air embolism is the most common form and may occur during access placement, removal, or during a dialysis session. Air typically travels from the right side of the heart and lodges in the pulmonary circulation, but an arterial embolism may occur if there's a right-to-left shunt. These patients will present with sudden respiratory distress, chest pain, hypotension, neurologic abnormalities, crepitus, levito reticularis, and that classic mill-wheel murmur, which is a churning sound heard throughout the entire cardiac cycle. Again, obtain an EKG, ultrasound, and x-ray. Your ultrasound is imperative in these patients to evaluate for the source of shock. Chest x-ray may show focal atelectasis, oligemia, or pulmonary artery enlargement. Place these patients in left lateral decubitus or the Trendelenburg position for venous air embolism or a supine position for arterial embolism. The catheter should be clamped and dialysis discontinued. If the patient has end organ dysfunction, they'll probably need hyperbaric oxygen therapy. Your third patient presents with redness and pain along the access site, as well as fever, tachycardia, and generalized weakness. On your initial evaluation, he meets criteria for sepsis. Patients with severe renal disease are at very high risk for infection, with catheter-based infections, the most common cause of bacteremia and sepsis, followed by lower respiratory tract infections. As patients' renal function decreases, the risk of infection drastically increases due to decreased T-cell activation and decreased leukocyte function. 
Typical infections like pneumonia and cellulitis may occur, but these patients are also at high risk for Clostridium difficile infection, recurrence, and mortality. UTI can also develop even without urine production. Catheter-related infections possess an incidence of around 5.5 episodes per 1,000 catheter days. Up to about a third are due to gram-positive cocci, with up to 20% polymicrobial. The risk of MRSA infection is about 100 times greater in these patients on dialysis, with catheters at higher risk than fistulas. Patients with sepsis from suspected axis site infections need broad-spectrum coverage, including vancomycin and a third-generation cephalosporin. Obtain cultures from the suspected site and a separate peripheral site. Also keep in mind that these patients are at very high risk for infections at other sources, including endocarditis. Now, what do we do about that hypotensive septic patient? How much fluid should we provide in the ED? Fluid assessment in these patients is not easy, but many of these patients in sepsis are intravascularly depleted. Your best bet is to use your clinical evaluation at the bedside as well as ultrasounds. Look for systemic fluid overload and pulmonary edema. This is where ultrasound can really shine because you can look for B lines on ultrasound as well as their IVC. If they appear fluid down, give them increments of 500 milliliters at a time and have a low threshold to start early vasopressors. Our fourth patient comes in with an access site that has not stopped bleeding since his dialysis session this morning. He's tachycardic and EMS placed a large dressing over the site. What do we need to consider in the management of this patient's bleeding? In the U.S., over 400,000 patients with chronic kidney disease use dialysis, and about 25% of these patients are hospitalized every year due to complications with their access site. If hemodialysis is used, a fistula is the optimal form of access. End-stage renal disease patients are at very high risk of bleeding due to uremia with von Willebrand factor disruption and normocytic, normochromic anemia. Coagulation studies are usually normal, and the stage of ESRD does not correlate with rates of hemorrhage. Like I briefly mentioned, there are a wide variety of causes of hemorrhage in these patients. Risks include platelet function and anticoagulation with heparin use during dialysis. Other risks for bleeding include infection, stenosis, and aneurysm. Closely evaluate these patients' hemodynamic status with rapid control at the bleeding site. IV access, CBC, type and screen, renal function and electrolytes are recommended. Start with direct focal pressure to the site for 5 to 10 minutes. Topical hemostatic agents, along with that direct focal pressure, is advised rather than a large bulky dressing. A single suture is useful for linear tears across the access site. You can also use a figure of eight stitch and use a non-cutting needle. Consider using Desmopressin 0.3 micrograms per kilogram IV to improve platelet function, which can decrease hemorrhage in about half of patients. If anticoagulation from heparin is a concern in the bleeding patient, one milligram of protamine IV per 100 units of heparin is recommended. Hemodialysis does correct uremic platelet dysfunction in up to 85% of patients. Other strategies include cryoprecipitate to replace fibrinogen and estrogen 25 mg IV. If these measures fail, a tourniquet can be applied. Aneurysm and pseudoaneurysm commonly occur due to frequent cannulation, which weakens the vessel wall. Incidence ranges anywhere from 5 to 6%, and stenosis drastically increases the risk. 
Patients with aneurysm typically have pain, motor or sensory dysfunction, skin erosion, and hemorrhage. But patients with pseudoaneurysm more likely present with infection or bleeding. Consult your vascular surgeons and obtain a Doppler ultrasound. Most of these patients with aneurysm or pseudoaneurysm will need operative repair. Thrombosis and stenosis is our next complication. This is a very common problem in patients with hemodialysis access. Over 75% of patients with grafts experience this complication within the first year of placement. Thrombosis or stenosis also increase the risk of aneurysm and pseudoaneurysm. Patients may have extremity edema, increased vein formation, and a change in the brewery or thrill. Pain and absence of that brewery or thrill are common with thrombosis. Doppler ultrasound and vascular surgery consultation are needed in the ED. Treatment really isn't required emergently, which typically includes thrombolysis or a surgical thrombectomy, but it needs to occur within 24 to 48 hours. I briefly mentioned infection just a bit ago. Infection is most common within the first six months of placement and is more common in patients with central venous access compared to an AV fistula. Close to 10% of grafts will undergo infection, and infection most commonly comes from staph aureus, staph epidermis, and gram-negative bacteria. This is the most common cause of graft loss in these patients. While patients can present with redness, induration, and warmth over the access site, because these patients have altered immune system, they may not demonstrate these classic findings, but rather have systemic symptoms like myalgias and fever. For patients with suspected access site infections, obtain a Doppler ultrasound of the graft to look for any thrombosis or stenosis, a CBC, lactate, renal function and electrolytes, and cultures. These patients should also be admitted to the hospital due to the high risk of further progression loss of graft. Finally, what about medications? If you need to provide these patients with analgesia, avoid NSAIDs. Opioids like morphine and hydromorphone should be started at a dose reduced by approximately 50%. Fentanyl might be a better choice for these patients. Most antibiotics are efficacious, but they may require a dosage adjustment but nitroferritin should be avoided. If these patients require contrast for radiographic evaluation, order the necessary studies without concern for renal injury, but just let your admitting docs know that they'll need dialysis. Finally, if you've made the decision to intubate the patient, you'll probably want to avoid succinylcholine, especially if you don't know the potassium level. Succinylcholine causes potassium efflux after binding to skeletal nicotinic receptors, which causes a rise in potassium. While this increase in potassium usually doesn't cause any consequences, in patients with end-stage renal disease, this may cause hyperkalemia and dysrhythmias. In summary, end-stage renal disease is increasing in the U.S. with greater all-cause mortality, cardiovascular events, and hospitalization rates when compared to patients with normal renal function. There are a variety of different organ systems that can be affected with complications, including the neurologic system, cardiopulmonary system, and infection. Neurologic complications include uremic encephalopathy, dialysis disequilibrium syndrome, ICH, and ischemic stroke. Cardiopulmonary complications include pericarditis, pericardial effusions, ACS, electrolyte abnormalities, pulmonary edema, and air embolism. Access site complications include bleeding, aneurysm and pseudoaneurysm, thrombosis and stenosis, and infection. These patients are at much higher risk of infection, though they may present atypically. Thanks for joining us on the emdocs.net podcast. Stay safe and healthy, everyone.